Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to uh, talk about and reflect upon and pray over the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 16, 13 to 20. It's a very critical text, and it's a, it's a text that is it's a very defining text for the Church. It is a text that has been very controversial, especially among the non-Catholic Christians, who basically challenge the authenticity of the verse. Then eventually, under um, the Protestant exegete Oscar Coleman, accepted that this was a legitimate exchange between Jesus and Peter, but uh, they denied that it was the establishment of anything lasting, that it was only a personal thing. But we're going to see that the implication in the text and the further implications in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Gospel of St. John confirm the fact that this is not just an isolated incident in a personal relationship with Jesus and Peter, but a very significant event in the life of Jesus' relationship with his people. And it starts like this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he put this question to his disciples. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, some say he is John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter spoke up. You are the Christ, he said, the Son of the living God. You can see why this is such a significant and important text for us. Jesus asks the question, remember now that Jesus has, has moved on from Galilee and that his intention now, despite the fact that he does encounter others, but it is now kind of an instructional period for his apostles, that he's going to teach them, he's going to help them to come to a life of intense and deep personal faith in order that they might be able to carry out the mission that he is going to give to them when he comes and reappears to them after he has risen from the dead. He says to them, then, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they reply, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Well, we know that Herod was kind of uneasy, feeling that perhaps Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist, whom he had murdered. The idea of Elijah the prophet returning was a very standard part of the Israeli understanding, of the Hebrew understanding of the end time, of the day of the Lord, that Elijah the prophet, as he is left in a fiery chariot, would return again and he would be the sign of the final age. And so they're saying that, some are saying then that Jesus is John the Baptist, some say he's the sign of the final age, he's the prophet Elijah. And unlike the other gospels, Matthew puts in Jeremiah as well, since Jeremiah was such a significant prophet and that he had, had a great deal to say about the fate of Israel. But then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? In other words, all right, you're telling me what other people are saying, but who do you say that I am? You know, this is a conversation we could have in the contemporary world, you know. Tell me who you think Jesus is. Who do people say Jesus is? And you could give a variety of different interpretations to this. 
going to the various traditions and, and various sectarian manifestations of the person of the Lord. But then Jesus gets specific. But you, you're the inner community. You're the apostles. Who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter spoke up and he said, you are the Christ. The Christ means you are the anointed one. And the Hebrew word for the anointed one in English is Messiah. And so he says, finally, yes, he is the Messiah. And he is the anointed one of the Lord. And he goes on then to maybe even make that more profound by saying to him, and you are the son of the living God. And so he remembers, Peter remembers the manifestations that uh, were made to Jesus in the transfiguration when the voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He understands through the event of the transfiguration and certainly it was known from the times of the baptism of the Lord when again the dove appeared and the voice spoke and this is my beloved son. So this is part of Peter's understanding then that the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, is actually the Son of God. Does he understand uh, the whole complexity of the Trinity? Of course not. But does he believe what God said? Yes, he does. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus then replies in an interesting way and says, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, you are a happy man because it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And this is a prefiguration for us, as well as a proclamation, as well as a statement of the present event, that Jesus says to, to Peter, blessed are you, happy are you. It's like in the Beatitudes, we say, blessed are those, happy are those. And it, it's, in other words, to be blessed is to have a certain amount of freedom, a certain amount of joy in the soul. And so he says, you know, how joyful your soul should be because you haven't figured this out for yourself, but my Father has given you this insight. He has illuminated your mind and your heart in order that you might proclaim the truth beyond your own rational capacity to do so. And this, of course, is controversial. It takes us into the whole Augustinian Bonaventurian notion of the illumination, knowledge is illumination and uh, very contrary to the Aristotelian paradigms and so forth. However, it seems to be the sense of the scripture here, that this has been revealed to you, this has been given to you, your mind has been enlightened in order that you might see this truth. And this is a prefiguration also. It is a prefiguration of what is to take place and what we are to talk about in the infallibility of the Pope that it is not, for instance, their own power, their own wisdom, their own rationality that leads them to the proclamations of dogmatic truth, but it is the fact that they are awash in the revelation given to the church throughout the ages. And you will find that in any authentic documentation, any authentic proclamation of an infallible doctrine, there will be within it an argument also an argument that reaches back deep into the history and the tradition of the church in order that they might say, this is not something new that has come to my mind. This is something we have always believed and the time in history has come for it to be articulated as an article of faith. This is especially true, for instance, if we look 
look at uh, Munificentissimus Deus, which is Pius XII's proclamation of the Assumption. He goes back, far back, into the story of the Church and says, we've always believed this, we've always spoken of this, we've seen it in art, we've seen it in culture, we've seen it written, um, we've heard it proclaimed, all of those kinds of things. We've had all of that. And so Pius says, so now is the time, now is the time to proclaim it. Now is the time for it to become a doctrine of the church. That's what happens here. Isn't that interesting? That Peter is not saying this on his own wisdom. He's not saying this on his own. He's not saying this because he finally figured it out. No. Jesus is saying, no, because you didn't know that until the Father revealed it to you, until the Father illuminated you with what is the truth of my revelation to my people. And so this might be, in fact, one of the first infallible proclamation of the, of the primate Peter, that you are, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so surely Jesus is. And so Jesus then, as a result of this, once the manifestation of the revelation to Peter has been made, Jesus just says, so now I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And here is a fascinating statement. His name was not Peter, it was Simon. But here Jesus calls him Kepha. We know that in um, Mark's gospel that we hear where Jesus intentionally changes his name. You have been known as Simon, I now call you Kepha, I now call you the rock. But here there's no such dramatic event, it's just he names him. He signifies him. And we have to remember this, too, about the ancient Hebrew language. There is no symbolism in it. There is metaphor sometimes and so forth, but there is not symbol because the language itself is, is one-dimensional. The word and the reality mean exactly the same thing. So that when, in fact, when Jesus is going to make Peter the rock of the church, he's going to therefore have to name him as such as well, so that the person and the function, the person and the office become one in the person of Peter. They are not two distinct realities. It's not like, well, this is a rock, now you're sitting on this for a while, but then somebody, no. It is, a, there is identity between the person and the reality of which the, the Hebrew speaks. So when he calls him Peter, he is naming not only himself as a person, but he is naming his office among the people. And then he says, on this rock I will build my church. And this is a very unusual statement, because nowhere else in the New Testament does Jesus speak about a church. It is only here. And so for that reason, many non-Catholic exegetes challenge the authenticity of this part of the gospel, of saying, I will build my church. But it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate, and it has an interesting development. The Hebrew word is kahal, which means the people of the Lord, the community of the Lord, the congregation of the Lord. It's the signification of the people in relationship to God. It's not just an assembly. It's not just a congregation. It's the congregation of the Lord, or it's the assembly of the Lord. And so the word kahal then, Jesus uses in this particular phrase in the New Testament 
to signify and to say that there is now a new community of the Lord. And the new community of the Lord is the new community of the Son of God, the new community of the Messiah, of the Anointed One, of the Christos. And so it is. The Church does not take on kind of its institutional form until the Acts of the Apostles and John's 20th chapter when the Holy Spirit comes upon the Apostles and actually forms the visible, integral community of the Church. But the church remains, and this is a great discussion in the whole idea of the history of the church. It's a great discussion between kahal, which is interpreted as assembly of the Lord or congregation or community of the Lord. And so from that, we derive some of the modern language derivatives from this. From assembly, from e ecclesia in, a, in Latin, comes l'église in French, iglesia in Spanish, chiesa in Italian. But then also, as a result of it being formed and shaped into something visible and concrete, the northern languages refer to it as a sacred place where the congregation gathers. And so the church becomes both the building, the institution, and the people. And we find that in the English word church, which comes from the Greek kyriakon. We find it, for instance, in the German word kircha, in the Celtic word kirk. We find it in all of those ways. That there is therefore this, after the coming of the descent of the, the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, we have a two-dimensional in institutional reality the sacred place and the assembly of the Lord that meets in the sacred place. These things combined become what we call universally in English, the church. It's really interesting. Romano Gordini says that, uh, that Protestantism never really used the word church, um, at least not in continental Europe until the Third Reich when they wanted to distinguish themselves from other popular movements. But here it is for us, Kahal, Ecclesia, right here in the uh, Gospel according to St. Matthew in the testimony of Peter. And then Jesus, once he has said this, once he said to Peter, you're, you're the foundation now of the Kahal. You're the foundation of the assembly. You're the foundation of the assembly, which when the Holy Spirit comes is going to be formed into the church, and you are the foundation upon which it happens. And it is guided by the revelation of the Father to the Kahal, to the people, and it will come through you, as it exactly as it has come through you in this proclamation that I am the Messiah, I am the Son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on and says, and the gates of the underworld can never hold out against it. We are accustomed to hear this saying, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And basically, we might also be able, with the funny use of the word Hades and, uh, and Sheol, we might be able to say the gates of death will not, because death is the mortal enemy of being and the mortal enemy of existence. And so nothing will be able to destroy, nothing will be able to destroy that which I have implanted firmly on the rock in the world, the church. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be considered bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be considered loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom, what an important thing that is. It was a legal formulation. 
and it meant to declare with authority was, was not or was or was not an obligation. In other words, he was giving you, therefore, the keys to the structure of the life of the kahal, the keys to the structure that was to become, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, the church, the ecclesia, the kyriakon, the sacred place, the holy people. It is to be, therefore, that which gives it shape and form. As a gift, therefore, to the rock, to Peter, it gives us the promise of stability, and it gives us the promise of truth, and it gives us the promise of longevity, and it gives us the promise of stability in the midst of a very changing world. This is why, for instance, the See of Peter can only decree for the well-being of the church legitimately and never for harm toward the church. And the well-being of the church is wrapped up in truth, in stability, and in existence until the end of the world. The truth comes to us through the doctrinal infallibility of the Pope. The uh, truth comes to us also through the struggling in the faith of the church, which is affirmed by the rock. Certainly the stability is the rock, and the longevity to the end of the created time is a promise that Jesus also makes in the Gospel of St. Matthew. And in making it in the Gospel of St. Matthew, he says, Behold, I am with you all days, even unto the consummation of the world. And then he gave his disciples strict orders not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And once again, then, he imposes upon them what is called in the, in the Gospels the messianic secret. Because the messianic secret, any time the apostles catch a glimpse of who he truly is, they have no language to use but the language that is already present within their, within their whole language structure, within the confines of ancient Hebrew. So what they have then are words which have already had meaning ascribed to them. And we have seen that the word Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, all of those have cultural baggage attached to them. The cultural baggage of all the various kinds of understandings of who this Christus, this Messiah would be. And whichever one of these varied nuances, whether it's king, whether it's general, whether it's prophet, whatever it is, it already has an image, an understanding of itself firmly implanted in the cultural mind of the people. And so if the apostles were to say, we have discovered that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, he is the Christ, we have discovered this, then everyone says, well then, we don't believe you because he doesn't fulfill our expectation of what those terms mean. We do that all the time. How many people do we have who have decided that the church should be, despite its humanity, be a sinless organization? And when they find out that sinful people are in it, they themselves, of course, not seeing the plank in their own eye, I presume, say to themselves, well, I'm out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. Because after all, it isn't perfect like I demanded it to be. Or it doesn't look exactly like I demand it to be. Like it isn't what... I want it to be. It's what it has become. It's what it is. We know that all the time. Well, the same trouble was, was in, was the same issue was in Israel. And so when they said, well, he's the anointed or he's the Messiah, if it's not who I expected it to be, then I don't believe in him.
So it would have been a dissemination of disbelief for them to proclaim publicly and loudly the fact that Jesus was Messiah. And that's the role that the, the uh, messianic secret plays in the gospel. It's protecting the people of Israel from that which would encourage them to disbelieve in Jesus Christ because they would have had already their imaginations, they would have already had their prerequisites for what that would have meant in their culture, in their world. So as we look then at the structure of this gospel, and we see most amazing things within it, we see, for instance, the putting aside of the old expectations of the Baptist, of Elijah, of Jeremiah. Um, we also find implicitly put aside generals and kings and, and all of those kinds of things that were part of the expectations. And we find then truthfully spoken through the rock, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we find Jesus saying, you don't know that through yourself. You don't know that from your culture. You don't know that from what you've learned. You don't know that from your reason. You know that because you have been illuminated by revelation, because the, my Father has told you this, and my Father will preserve this infallible testimony until the end of the world, and it will be preserved within this office that I am now establishing, the office of Peter, the office of the rock. And in this, I will build my church. Where are we with all of this? Where are we in our faith? And where are we in our understanding of the travails and the uh, humanity of the church? If we come to understand that at the very, can our faith be shaken? Yes. Have we had popes that shook the faith of the church? Yes. What has happened with all of that? It has all eventually faded away into the mist, and that which pertains and adheres to the rock has survived into the present age, into the present time. We have to renew in every age, in every age, our commitment to the rock of Peter, to the institution of the church, to the assembly and the sacred place. We have to, in some ways, this was part of the fallacy of the, the architectural catastrophes at the late 60s and throughout the 70s and 80s. The whole idea of the ecclesia, the southern idea of the, of the assembly, the kahal, dominated the whole ecclesiology of the church. We lost the sense of the kiriakon, the sacred place. And so that which was supposed to be a sacred place became kind of a shopping mall look or a hotel lobby look or something for a while until we regained our footing. And uh, of course, we have a great deal of gratitude to that from many of the, the great contemporary church architects that are, that are among us. And so I think that it becomes imperative for us always. You know, we could say, well, I was a great fan of John Paul II, and therefore I take everything he said is true. Fine. But, you could say, I therefore don't take stuff Benedict said, or I don't take stuff Francis said. Or we could say, I'm a great fan of Benedict XVI. I think he hit the nail right on the head. And others could say, the bishops of Germany refused to even shake his hands when he came to Germany as pope. That is how deep the dissidence was. That is how deep the infidelity is among the hierarchy of the German church. 
Or we could say, I'm really happy because I, I like everything Francis says, but I reject Benedict, I reject John Paul II. Can't do that. It's not true. The church is not a fan club. The church is the assembly of the covenant that is the assembly of God, which meets in the holy places, sacred places, which the church establishes everywhere in the world. It is as holy and as given to the presence of the living God as any local community is able to make it, from the most simplest form to the most elaborate. It is somehow or other the manifestation and the expression of the church that we believe that Jesus dwells among us and that we are the ones who build his home as Solomon built the temple, so too do we as the place where the living God encounters the sacred assembly and as such gives us the manifestation of the living church. The whole structure, which is to be affirmed and solidified by the coming of the Holy Spirit and the Acts of the Apostles, is now here in its natural primordial form at the testimony of St. Peter about who Jesus is and Jesus' response by establishing a rock on which to build his church and the power of the keys, which is to guide it and govern it throughout the ages. And it will exist no matter what our travails and trials until the consummation of the world. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.